Okay, greetings, gang. Hello, friends. We're back again. It's Chapo coming at you this Monday. Um, uh, me, Matt, and Felix, as usual. But for today's episode, we are joined uh, once again by the Chapo Foreign Affairs Desk. I refer to all-time returning guest champion Derek Davison and a friend of the show, Daniel Besner, uh, the host of the upcoming uh, the ongo- uh, sorry the upcoming podcast project, American Prestige, here to. Take us on a trip around the world. Derek, Daniel, hello. Hey, guys. Hello. Uh, Derek is just, you know, I mean, he's stunting. I mean, the number of challenge coins that he's racked up <laughs> on this show, it's ridiculous. He's going to have, he's putting, putting new, well, a I got to get a free sub at some house. point or something, right? I mean, like, uh, <laughs> at any, at any, at any podcast affiliated uh, sandwich shop, please turn in your challenge <laughs> coin for a free tuna melt. Yeah, you can go to Mission Barbecue whenever you want and get the building seven ribs. <laughs> nice. Well, like I said, you know, Derek, Derek, and Daniel are you know our foreign affairs foreign affairs correspondent, our our own personal intelligence bureau here to give us the presidential daily briefing about what is going on in the world today. Um, let's just dive into it today. Um, let's start in the nation of Iran. Our old, our old nemesis, Iran. They're at it again because you know they're uh, not only um, trying to trying to weasel out of this nuclear deal that you know they that they so yeah, surreptitiously totally, and right. un- yeah, underhandedly they, um, un- undermined and are seeking to you know weaken America by um, agreeing. Uh, <laughs> to the standards of the uh, nuclear uh, uh, disarmament treaty that uh, they signed with us um, back during Obama. Yeah, it's fucked up. They're acting like we killed their national hero or something. <laughs> <laughs> in, in another sovereign country for no apparent reason. It was a pretty good move on uh, the geniuses behind U.S. foreign policy. Well, you guys forget that according to uh, 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 Miley Cyrus, uh, <laughs> Trump would have been General Miley Cyrus. Trump would have been criminally negligent. He if, said, he yeah, hadn't killed, uh, right. if he hadn't killed, if he hadn't killed party in the USA, uh, head of the he Joint would have been sued, and he would have had to go in front of Judge Judy. <laughs> I would, I would like, I would so happily like trade him to Iran. Absolutely, not just even to kill, tuss, just do whatever you want. I don't just care. him up like a turkey yeah. and just airdrop him into the center of the city. A Trump for yeah. Ahmadinejad <laughs> trade. That would be a hell of a trade. That would be kind of cool. Ahmadinejad is a fan of. I don't agree with everything he's done, obviously, but like, you know, we're, you know, perfect. Don't let uh, perfect be the enemy of good. Uh, Ahmadinejad <laughs> would free NBA young boy. Oh, you know, definitely. he's like a fan of rap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no yeah that's true. That's true. He's, he's become a much more open minded guy, I think. Uh, he since would his like it's a foresight of leadership. It would be a problem like he would lock up approximately 20 million other people <laughs> but <laughs> young boy would be free and be uh, I, cool. we might very well be on that list that's fine i mean like you if you go to prison long enough it's just like your life and yeah, he would like, let oh, us do like a camp. show there yeah <laughs> it's like fine because it's not really a big deal unless you're a musician and you can't really make music I was uh, referring to what Matt was talking about. We got uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I mean, epic milkshake duck on this guy. I mean, one day he's saying, oh, Trump's a tyrant and we were all going to resign before he um, did a coup. And then the next day you find out, you know, 
uh, General, General Meek General Meek Millie is saying that if we don't kill Suleimani, Trump could go to jail. I mean, I just I want to know how that works. It, the consequences <laughs> would never be the same if we don't assassinate Suleimani. And even I mean, even the coup stuff was just him like imagining a scenario in his head of Trump doing something and being like, "Oh, if he does that, I'm going to quit, and then he'll be sorry." Like, yeah, there's it was no, ridiculous. there's no substance to it. I mean, it was yeah. just him kind of inventing a thing to be mad about. Well, I love that because like all the people who like take that as an opportunity to be afraid all the time are like, look at this. It proves that Trump would stop at nothing. And it's like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure no one stopped at more things than Donald Trump. <laughs> That's all he does is he stops immediately. Yeah, and- I'm, he's pretty much will go to no length to do anything. <laughs> I mean, I know we talked about it the last time, but as far as um, reasons to be afraid all the time, um, I'm not exactly reassured that the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff took this opportunity to remind everyone that if you want to do a coup, you're going to need the military. So you better make sure that yeah, you, right. like you stay friendly us with us. Checklist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, get us on your side. I'm not even sure any of them would have the bravery to do it, though. They're such professionalized people at this point. There's no gumption that would that one would need to do a real coup. Yeah, they're yeah. all just middle managers. It's a bunch of Michael Scotts. Exactly. They all have PhDs, literally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no gumption and there's no, I mean, there's no charisma. Like, there's no MacArthur who could right. come in and, like, you know, like rally right, and MacArthur, people. MacArthur couldn't even do it. Like, that's the thing is, like, yeah, these guys are nothing, like, they're not, nothing compared to, like, MacArthur or Patton. Even those guys, like, couldn't do it. Like, MacArthur was on the verge of it, kind of, or starting it, kind of. And then Richard Russell was, like, Let's make him cry in front of the Senate. And that ended it. <laughs> you know, it's funny you bring up uh, General MacArthur because I found out um, just this past weekend, um, I found out another very interesting bit of Menneker family lore as it relates to General MacArthur. And that is that my great uncle, Frederick Engels Menneker, um, became friends on some sort of transatlantic uh, uh, ship crossing with the uh, sort of famous muckraking sort of... Uh, uh, the, the famous muckraking columnist Drew Pearson. And Drew Pearson was looking for uh, dirt on General MacArthur when he wanted to run for president. And he apparently gave my great uncle the, uh, the assignment, or he just asked him to um, hang out with and host General MacArthur's mistress at dinner and like uh, just sort of take her about town to get the dirt on uh, basically everything about their relationship. And that is ultimately one of the reasons he didn't run for president is because Drew Pearson... And courtesy of my great uncle, had this oppo file on uh, the, a guy who maybe you know would have would have done a coup, um, uh, you know, had he had he had the chance. That's so interesting because all those guys had mistresses. Eisenhower had a very famous one. I think her name was Kay, and it was kind of an open secret that that he was sleeping with her throughout most of the European campaign. I believe we talked about that a few episodes ago about how like yeah, Eisenhower yeah, Eisen- he tried to resign. To, to Marshall because he was in love with his Jeep driver right. and he was yeah, like, right. get your shit together. Yeah, Marshall it's was like, like we're in World War II. You're plotting Operation Overlord. Maybe like <laughs> fucking chill out. Generals used to be awesome. Like Petra- Petraeus' affair sucks so much compared to that. Yeah, it's so lame compared to like your Jeep driver who's driving you all over England. It's some. It was like a CIA analyst, right? With Petraeus, it was someone he met. Yeah, in, like, it was a his biographer. Room. Yeah, right. yeah. It was his biographer, and she was stitched up because all of the like the other military hot wives of Tampa, who like you know <laughs> sort of flock around Centcom, were uh, jealous that you know she she had the sort of catbird seat. 
of America's uh, at the time number one general. Yeah, her name was like Paula Broadband or something. <laughs> yeah, something like that. No, that's close. <laughs> that is, yeah, I think that's what it is. Um, but uh, back to the back to the nation of Iran. Uh, Iran had an election. Who was just elected? And like, how does the election of of of, of what is his name? Rossi. Raisi, Ibrahim Raisi. Raisi. Yeah. Um, how does that play into like the context of these stalled uh, nuclear talks and also a um, uh, a prisoner exchange that was supposed to go forward? Uh, yeah. So, uh, right, Ibrahim Raisi, who was the chief justice in Iran um, previously, ran for president, which was somewhat surprising in that chief justice is actually probably a better job than Iranian president. Um, but he's clearly being groomed for, uh, or it seems like he's being groomed to succeed, uh, uh, Ali Khamenei as Supreme leader. And so he ran for president and in a pretty stark contrast to the way Iran usually manages its elections where they sort of put out guardrails, uh, for, for candidates and they exclude anybody who goes outside the guardrails this time. Uh, the Guardian Council, which is responsible for vetting candidates, really like cut anybody who could have been a challenger to Raisi. So it, it was much more of a, a staged kind of managed process uh, this time around. Raisi won with like 72 percent of the vote with uh, fairly low turnout, sub 50 percent, which for an Iranian presidential election is is quite low. He's Raisi is, is a bad dude, <laughs> really. Um, I mean, he's implicated in. Uh, back in the the 1980s, he was the deputy prosecutor in Tehran and was implicated in uh, a sweeping, you know, a mass arrest and then mass execution uh, of a lot of political prisoners. Um, so, you know, he's he's got a record that is not terribly good. Um, but the the salient thing in terms of the nuclear talks is that. Um, j- just the transition itself, the fact that Iran is, you know, un- in in the middle now of a presidential transition, they're going from a reasonably moderate uh, president, at least on the subject of foreign affairs and engagement with the U.S., uh, to one who is going to be quite a bit more hard line. And he, he's sort of uh, put the kibosh on any further negotiations on the nuclear deal until he takes office and is able to, to oversee it himself. So it's not it's not an end to those talks, uh, but it, it is a um, an unfortunate pause at a time when it looked like things were progressing in a positive direction. And it's a it's a function, frankly, to some degree of, of the fact that the Biden administration, after you know coming in saying we're going to reverse what Trump did, we're going to get back into the nuclear deal, spent uh, you know a good two plus months kind of dicking around and saying you know well Iran has to come back into compliance first and then we'll talk about it. and that was you know obviously a non-starter for the Iranians and it was just a lot of wasted time that now puts everything yes. in the middle of this presidential transition. Typical Biden bullshit of maintaining hegemony and pretending that you're going to be do, uh, doing something different, which I think has been really characteristic of this administration and, and makes total sense given who he's appointed to these top positions, particularly uh, Anthony Blinken. Um, I think this is just classic Biden foreign policy. So they had a couple of months before this presidential election that like they possibly could have if if they hadn't put all these like preconditions or just dicked around, possibly got the um, uh, the the nuclear agreement um, reinstated 
but now there, there seems that this like more hardline administration, there's like way less of a possibility of that ever happening. I still think that the, the nuclear deal is going to be reinstated because, you know, it's obviously in Iran's interest to see it reinstated and, and get sanctions relief. I mean, they're 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 desperate for that. Um, what the, the Biden administration was hoping for was that reinstating the nuclear deal would be a stepping stone to further diplomacy. And I, I don't think that's going to happen under Raisi. I, he, he seems to be interested in regional diplomacy, like with the Saudis, for example, but he has no interest in talking to the Americans, which may not be the worst thing in the world, actually. Talking to the Americans doesn't work out very well for the Iranians. Uh, a regional approach might be be a better way to go. In terms of the prisoner swap, this was a, a negotiation that was apparently going on uh, in Geneva, kind of alongside the nuclear talks. Um, and supposedly, according to the Iranians, uh, they had agreed with the U.S. and the U.K. on kind of a, a, a an exchange of uh, prisoners. And the Biden administration, after the Iranians said, we'd like to uh, to put a hold on the nuclear talks and, and come back to it after the transition, the Biden administration put the kibosh on the prisoner exchange. Supposedly the UK was, you know, is still gung ho to go forward with it. But, but Biden has, has said, no, we're not going to do this until there's progress on the nuclear talks. The, the Biden administration has denied this and it's, you know, it's hard to know um, exactly who's talking out of their ass here, but um, uh, you know, that's, that's uh, become another, point of contention in in a situation where you you're, you would like to see fewer points of contention at this point not more do we know anything about these prisoners that were going to be exchanged theoretically i mean th iran has a number of of dual nationals um us and uk iranian you know kind of dual nationals who are um in prison for one reason or another and i i don't know the specifics as to who they would be uh, releasing, but but you hear, you know, there's names, Niamazi uh, is one, um, uh, you know, there are a couple of UK uh, citizens who could, you know, potentially be released. Um, but I don't know specifically. On the other side, it's probably people who are, uh, have been arrested for sanctions violations and, and that sort of thing who the Iranians would be after. Um, I mean, this is also happening in the context of, you know, various ongoing uh, proxy wars in the region between America and its allies and clients and Iran and theirs, particularly in Syria and Yemen. I mean, there's been ongoing, continuing American airstrikes on uh, militias in Syria. Are these militias linked to Iran? They are. I mean, they get support from Iran. There's a tendency... Um, and this is true of the Houthis in, in Yemen as well. There's a tendency on the part of uh, policymakers in Washington to view these groups as kind of uh, just down the line puppets uh, of Iran. They, they do the same thing with Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, um, which is not true. I mean, they, they all they get support and you know some guidance, maybe some uh, financial and, and material support from Iran, but they're not um, they're not quite as tied at the hip as as. Uh, I think is the Washington consensus, and 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 just like I mean, in terms of like just the, the 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 Yemen conflict and Saudi Arabia, I mean, like I mean, this is this is just still ongoing. I mean, I I I I'm seeing more of a media push in America to talk about you know how 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 ruthless and and evil the Houthis are and all the war crimes they're doing. I mean, like how do how do we how do I mean how do how does one interpret? I mean, the, the, this kind of 
this PR effort on behalf of the Saudis and their allies. Yeah. So, I mean, the Biden administration announced, uh, Joe Biden announced in his first foreign policy speech back in, I think it was early February, that he was going to end U.S. support for offensive Saudi operations in Yemen. Uh, there's no evidence that he's changed U.S. policy in Yemen in any way. I mean, the, we're still maintaining Saudi aircraft. I, you know, I don't see any I believe change. we're doing it through contractors now. Yeah, just right. The U.S. Air Force right. isn't doing it directly. <laughs> right. Which we're we'll just, be seeing more U.S. Of, contractor. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's that's going to be a, a bigger and bigger thing. I think Danny's right. And just to just to very quickly, I think that we're going to see in general, not only use of more contractors, but this shift, particularly in the Middle East to uh proxy wars, like Will was saying, but also a lot more aerial surveillance and air, uh, aerial strikes as as the, the U.S., I think, does do a managed kind of retreat from the region. I think we're, what we're seeing now in Yemen is going to be representative of a broader shift in U.S. strategy. I don't know if you think that's right, Derek, or not. Um, I do. I think that, um, I mean, the next, we can, I don't know if we're, we can talk about the Afghanistan withdrawal, but Iraq is the next right domino to go. And, and I think there's a lot more consternation about that withdrawal but it, it kind of needs to happen politically for from the iraqi perspective and and the u.s is gonna want to find a way to keep managing iran containing iran in that region and it'll have to be kind of drones and, and airstrikes yeah kind of what like political scientists call offshore balancing in a sense where the u.s mm-hmm. is still gonna try to uh basically manipulate uh, the entire region, but without doing kind of any boots on the ground. And I think that's going to be this shift to long-term imperial management that kind of echoes what, you know, Rome did 2000 years ago ish. Uh, and is the classic move of declining empires that, that, that have uh, lost political legitimacy. And I think this is going to be the big story of the first Biden uh, term. Yeah. I mean, the official American policy since like, sort of the mid to late nineties onwards and almost everything is like put it in a place or do it in such a way that no one thinks about it. The issue with Yemen for the, on the American end wasn't, you know, that this was a mismanaged war that the Saudis, uh, sort of on behalf of the UAE bit off more than they could chew. It was that for the first time people were actually thinking about it and actually thinking about American engagement with Saudi policy if we can do it in such a way where it's sort of a franchise system, problem solved. Exactly. Exactly. It's basically yeah, it's the U.S. military. In between. Right. Yeah, the U.S. military serves as uh, like kind of the minor leagues for future contractors. Um, I think that's you're going to see that sort of structure develop kind of like a janissary core um, over time. The, the Yemen, I mean, the Yemen situation now is, you know, Biden, the Biden administration has tried to get Peace talks going again. There have been a few moves in that direction, but uh, they're really stalled over. Um, the Houthis uh, have kind of insisted that that they want to see an end to the blockade that the Saudis have imposed before they will engage in talks on a ceasefire. And what I think the Saudis and the, the administration, the Biden administration want is an exchange will lift the blockade in exchange for a ceasefire, which uh, you know, is is gumming things up. The the conflict is heated up. Um, it's been pretty intense in uh, Ma'rib province, which is sort of in north central Yemen. Uh, it's the last major population center in northern Yemen. The Houthis have been really engaged in trying to capture Ma'rib city uh, and the oil fields that surround it as sort of the last piece of the puzzle before they go to the negotiating table with as much leverage as possible. 
the Saudis and the Yemeni government have started a counteroffensive in another province a little further south called Beida, uh, which uh, I, you know, I, I haven't seen and I full disclosure, I've been on vacation for a few days, so I haven't, I'm not entirely <laughs> on top of things. Um, but at last check, they were, they were making some pretty good advances and, and I'm not sure that that could, uh, kind of redefine, uh, where the, the situation is on the ground. Wow. B- a big, big letdown from Derek here. He took his eye off the, the Yemen situation for two days <laughs> yeah, so we, he could be with his family. We, we launch a podcast and Derek immediately goes on vacation. Classic move. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to. Re- we're going to return again to the Afghanistan withdrawal in our reading series for this week. But, but, but I just want to just like br- briefly just talk about. I mean, do you, do you guys see like in in because obviously like um as, as this becomes real and as the Taliban takes back more of the country, um I'm, I'm seeing a lot of like pressure from the media on Biden himself and his surrogates to be like. Well, what happens when the Taliban takes over the country? Like, will you be responsible for like all the people that die? Like, or is the America is America responsible for the people who will die after we pull out? And Biden said candidly, no, we're not. But I mean, obviously, yes, we are. But we're responsible for like every other death that's <laughs> happened up until yeah, this point. So right. it doesn't really seem like you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. Well, that yeah. that is the thing. Like, none of this works on Biden. He is unmoved by like the emotional manipulation that the press does on Afghanistan. Afghanistan. I'm not going to answer any more question. Afghanistan. Look, Fourth of July. I'm concerned that you guys are asking me questions that I'll answer next week. But I'm this is a holiday weekend. I'm going to celebrate it. There's great things happening. There was um, someone posted a uh, excerpt from a book about uh, Richard Holbrook where uh, some like shitty journalist like sits down with Biden and, and he's like, uh, you know, if we leave Afghanistan, you know, what about women's rights? And Biden goes, come on, man, I'm not sending my son over there for that. I'm not, saying, I'm not sending my son back for women's rights. Who cares? And it's like, it's like, it is like kind of a heartless answer, but at the same time it is like a, like you're not going to move Americans on that B I mean, we've been there for 20 years and if it's exactly the same, then we're not going to make it any better. We haven't. It's such you know, a wacky they've argument. been saying this from, from the fucking beginning. There've been 20 years of girls going to school who have they graduated. They got, have they gotten jobs? Is the place any fucking different? No, it's, I mean, it's like you do, you do come to this grim realization where it's like, well, this is something that only they can figure out. We've been there for 20 fucking years. If we're not any closer, I don't know what the fucking tell you. But I mean, the, the purpose of this is like not to, it's not to move Americans. It's to move policymakers. And luckily this doesn't, that doesn't, that specifically doesn't move Biden. Because he's not a meritocrat. And and I think that Biden just wasn't trained in the sort of imperial management that the people who essentially came after him were trained in. And then this was like the logic of the particularly of the 1990s when the U.S. empire needs this new logic without the Soviet Union. It's like we're going to save the world. And that, of course, leads into Afghanistan and it leads into Iraq. But Biden is just from a different generation. So it just doesn't it just doesn't make sense for him. And it's just also completely it's this literally liberal fucking imperialism from the 19th century, the civilizing mission. It's the exact same language that the British were using, that the French were using. It, it, it is a 
a defining characteristic of liberal imperialism, which I think historically has done so much damage to the world. It's not even a question any longer uh, to basically make these claims. And of course, George W. Bush said that he felt bad for Afghan women or something along those lines in an interview last week. And it's just so absurd. If anyone, George W. Bush, anyone has did, done as much damage to, to women in the world more than George W. Bush, it's almost difficult to fathom. So I, I, I wonder if that sort of argument is going to begin to lose its steam, but I think that'll just be replaced with something of like America needs to dominate the world. Yeah, no, it'll, it'll, it'll be, they'll find a new thing. This, this thing never goes away. It always like shifts to whatever the meta is. And the meta for a while, it was, you know, Samantha power type (laughs) shit. It's like, like you said, for the nineties up until like now, kind of it's Cecil Rhodes who goes to sweet green. Right. But exactly. After that, it will be something else. It'll be like, you know, maybe they'll pivot to the right. And it's like, don't you want to be a crusader? Don't you want to don't you want to be based and like go to war and come back and take a wife? Well, they've, I mean, they've they'll, started yeah. to do that. Yeah. I, like, I, you know, with the the rehabilitation of burnout neocons into the Democratic sphere now, <laughs> you know, the people who kind of washed out with Trump, there is a lot of talk or there has been. Uh, more talk about just kind of frankly saying we need to be in Afghanistan forever because it's the frontier of the right, empire the Indian and, wars. and we have the to police Indian it. Wars. Uh, yeah. But just I, I, I do want to say like the the uh, the fucking gall of George W. Bush to, to say that it's it's an oversimplification to say that that Bush and his heart on for Iraq caused the United States to. Uh, drop the ball on Afghanistan and, 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 you know, shift all of its resources to this other completely fucking moronic conflict. But, but it did contribute to the fact that this 20 year conflict has gotten nowhere. Uh, You know, you had a situation where the the Taliban was beaten. Uh, The United States had, had achieved its war aims in Afghanistan, except for, this lingering, you know, taking apart the the leadership of Al Qaeda, and it was at that point that this fucking numbnuts said, "We have to go into Iraq now. We have to go after Saddam Hussein for reasons that you know are are entirely uh, were entirely bullshit at the time, and and remain you know have gotten been even you know revealed to be even more bullshit since then. Uh, but for him to now turn around and say, "Well, I feel bad for Afghan women," I mean, you know, what the fuck? He's the guy who who you know started this this shit show to begin with. And but it seems that embrace like the neocons are returning home to the Democratic Party, and I think Felix is right, and, and Derek, as you were saying, it's already begun that that's going to be the move. The move is just going to be a, a a move towards almost a pure power political situation, and I think most Americans just aren't going to care. They're their only move. I mean, like you know. I do see a lot of talk in like sort of the persuasion sphere, the right center to like stated left center of like, you know, young men are adrift. Young men need meaning, but they're getting wrapped up in all this shit. And I think like the solution will of that will be like, no, take your birthright, like become a man by killing someone. And it is that is very interesting because if you look at the Saudi foreign policy, where they never really had like a formalized, you know, they never really had formalized like uh, illegals programs or like intelligence cells in other countries, but more or less just took their population of scary young men and were like, here, go to Chechnya, here, go to go to Afghanistan, go here, go here, go here, spread the word. 
you know, you, you, you become your client states if you do this long enough. And I don't really think that will work the same way. I think we're too far gone for that. I think that, you know, if your, your message to young men is, you know, you're adrift to claim your birthright, whatever they're like, I already am. I'm posting. Right. You're not going to get them to do this. You're not going to get them into this fucking dead end. No one gives a shit. You burnt out America on this for the better. Probably the most hope, honestly, like your best bet is, Hey, do you want to be well-trained for the coming race wars in America? Yeah. Uh, go go out and get get some uh, get get some kills, uh, get some notches on your gun, and then come home, because everybody yeah. now everybody who wants to fight. They they identify their enemy as within the the the, the moment the time when you could imagine it as some uh, scary other is over after Iraq uh, crapped out. Everyone now sees the enemy as internal. But the, I mean, that's the the amazing thing is you know that. Since the mid '90s, since the destruction of like the Ameri- the American like public housing high rise, since people thought like it was too scary to have something like Robert Taylor Homes or Cabrini Green sort of in the middle of the city, and it's like okay, what's the solution? We're going to bring them down, and everything fled into these lesser populated places that used to be like good middle class neighborhoods when there were good middle class jobs. It's like why for like this is for a different group than like you know socially dislocated white men but like for people who live in like Englewood someone who lives in like O-Block or somewhere in Jacksonville or Memphis it's like I'm I live in Syria I live in Afghanistan like the war is fucking here you're gonna get me to sign up to go to another war I live in fucking Homs that's what so many American neighborhoods are already and I also think you're gonna see that shift to uh, uh, robot soldiers as well so there's yeah. going to be there's going to be a real I think connection between gaming and, and military shit and the military itself is already starting to get this going with things like esports teams and there's new developments in AI it's like that old Simpsons joke you know uh, robot robot warriors will be fighting in the future I think we're going to start seeing that in the next 10 years maybe earlier The wars of the future will not be fought on a battlefield or at sea they will be fought in space or possibly on top of a very tall mountain. In either case, most of the actual fighting will be done by small robots. And as you go forth today, remember always, your duty is clear to build and maintain those robots. Just like the, the broader point about the, the, the Afghan withdrawal or like the seeming like this finally like we're leaving leaving that country. And, you know, with it, you see the concurrent like news stories about, oh, what, what about our translators? What about all the people that are going to die? What about all these? What about all this footage of like the Taliban re- like recovering like tons of American weapons and 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 infrastructure? Oh, like how do you feel about that? And I think I mean it, it's it's heartening in one way to see that basically nobody, the president included, gives a shit. But like I I can't you can't draw too much um uh the hope out of that because I just think like the American public overall just doesn't care about anything that happens overseas. And to the extent that it doesn't trouble them, they'll countenance any level of horror, uh, us directly uh, engaging in it or otherwise. No, yeah, that is the way that, like, the people now who are trying emotional manipulation, the thing that allowed them to do it for so long, the thing that allowed them to run this gangster state internationally so long was the fact that Americans genuinely do not like thinking about this. The thing that's preventing us to... 
to quote the Thomas challenge from getting back out there, <laughs> getting back out there is, yeah, that we don't like thinking about this at all. You can't emotionally manipulate someone who already doesn't care. And I, that's, I just want to underline that that's really by design. When the American empire was being created in the 40s, the people who did it were like, we're not going to give ordinary Americans any say over imperial management. And so mm-hmm. basically the entire national security state is by design um, made to remove not only ordinary people, which like we barely get uh, anything in the system anyway, but even Congress. You know, if you yeah. think about things that should properly be the function of a state, like, I don't know, researching what a state should do, that's privatized in this country to think tanks. And now that's just expanded to be privatized to the literal fighting of wars. And we basically have mercenaries it's like Gustavus Adolphus traipsing across Europe. We have a mercenary army effectively. And so Americans, of course, they don't give a shit because they have no fucking say about what their country does in the world. Um, this is in terms of like the, the reality of um, the, the prospects of the Taliban once again taking over control of all of Afghanistan. I mean, Derek, you, you mentioned earlier that, I mean, you, like before the show, you mentioned earlier that, that Biden, like they're seeking to maybe offset that in some way by building a new military base in Central Asia or like it would have involve some deal with Russia in order for that to be the case. I mean, like, how does that factor? Yeah, the, the Russia thing is is something I've just seen in the last couple of days, but I mean, the idea, um, you know, is sort of the, the, the deal for the U S to withdraw is contingent on the Taliban meeting certain, uh, basically on, unenforceable conditions. One of which is separating itself from Al Qaeda and sort of making sure that Afghanistan is no, is never again used as a, as a, a hideout for international terrorism. Uh, so the the point, you know, what they've been talking about is kind of how can we do uh, uh, some kind of a, a facility? How can we put put some kind of a facility uh, around Afghanistan in the vicinity? Um, you know, preferably in a in a Central Asian uh, country, uh, one of the old Soviet republics. Uh, to monitor that, and if necessary, to do a drone strike on like an Al Qaeda. Uh, you know, group or a, a, an Islamic state group or whatever, uh, you know, if, if we see something going on and potentially, and you know, you've seen uh, people kind of slip, especially uh, senior military officers kind of slip and suggest that, that this base could also be used to attack the Taliban. If, if uh, there was some kind of catastrophic event uh, like uh, the fall of Saigon, basically, or the, you know, the fall of Kabul, um, but yeah, it's been, I mean, none of the, the central Asian republics have, have been, uh, seemingly very amenable to this. Um, they're, they're all kind of trying to make peace with the, the idea of the Taliban taking over again and, you know, not antagonizing and, and causing a, a, a rift with them. They're also, um, all of them, you know, are, are still somewhat beholden to Russia in some way. Um, or at least need to take, you know, Russian concerns into account about hosting the American military. Um, and, and so there, there's been over the last few days, I've seen floated the idea of, uh, the U S kind of leasing, uh, or borrowing military facilities from Russia in central Asia, but that would come <laughs> with, I mean, that would come with a lot of conditions like intelligence sharing with the Russians <laughs> and, you know, their concerns about like, Putting U.S. drones at a Russian base and like having Russian yeah, okay, personnel yeah, we, okay. we, looking we, we at these things. Their mil- <laughs> we right. can lease their military bases, but we have to allow their bots on our social media. 
<laughs> so I don't I mean I don't think that's going to go anywhere but this is still something that that's talked about in terms of kind of maintaining some kind of a presence uh, in the region even after the the withdrawal from Afghanistan which just highlights we- the psychopathy of this whole approach what is the United States doing in this region what and what fucking way is our american interests connected to just being permanently dominant in in basically southwest asia forever i mean this is a it's a pathology it makes absolutely no sense especially given what's going on at home and so you just see this like deep throbbing psychosis at the core of the entirety of us foreign policy across parties it's really fucking grim shit I, I see where you're coming from with that, but you know, maybe if we have more of a working relationship with these Russians, hardworking Americans who maybe own a business, who maybe are living, they have the space, they'll finally be able to buy the sable that they want. <laughs> Not referring to anyone specifically, just no. someone, yeah. <laughs> Business Some owner, random American. Business owner, not like you would see him on the street and go, that's a handsome guy, but he's it wouldn't you wouldn't immediately pick him for a business owner. You'd be like, Oh, he's a bit over six feet. He's uh, very confident. That's a guy who animals respect him. Everyone knows that. If he got a two stables, a brother and a sister, he'd have no problems. He doesn't have wallpapers, so they can't fuck that up. There you go. And yeah. he should be able to own two stables. Because he loves them. Uh, the one one other thing about Afghanistan that's sort of in con, kind of in concert with uh, what we talked about earlier in the, the the show the the rise of more proxy conflicts and less direct U.S. involvement. The one of the lingering issues is with the withdrawal uh, has been the security of Kabul airport, um, which there needs to there there probably needs to be some independent security force stationed there or else a lot of countries, maybe the U S included are going to pack up their embassies in Kabul and get the hell out of there uh, because they don't have any confidence that, that the Afghan government can hold on to the city. Uh, so we've been talking to Turkey uh, about putting, again, kind of leaving a, a residual force at the airport just to secure the airport uh, as a proxy basically for the United States uh, the Turks have said they would be willing to do that with U.S. support. The Taliban has said, hell no, <laughs> Turkey needs to get out along with the rest of NATO. Uh, and so that's very much up in the air. Like the, the Turks are supposedly going to be in negotiations with the Taliban directly to kind of hash this out if they can. But I, I don't know that 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 uh, that seems like a dead end to me. It's very similar to the whole uh, end of Vietnam thing with the decent interval strategy. I mean, I don't know, Derek, if you agree, but that's kind of what I view this like. Everyone kind of knows in 10 years it's probably going to be dominated by the Taliban. But it's just the idea of like American prestige needs to be protected for a certain certain number of years, ideally. I really think that's what's going on here. So they're just trying to like delay the delay the inevitable, which is a Saigon type scenario. Kissinger, same thing. Yeah, exactly. That's what I I think think it is. Yeah, I think you, there's a there's a a desire to sort of put some distance between our withdrawal and the the fall of of Kabul. There's also this sort of hail mary idea that with the U.S. gone, the the other countries in the region, Russia, Iran, India, Pakistan, uh, you know, will will uh, all of whom for one reason or another have have some you know reason not to want the Taliban to take over in Afghanistan uh, or or worse to have Afghanistan kind of fall into perpetual civil war again. 
so there's this kind of hail mary hope that that the these other countries, China also would be included in this, uh, would step in and and take over some responsibility for this themselves. And uh, you know, I mean, that's. Uh, that's a shot in the dark, I think. Yeah, but it good can't, luck. <laughs> it can't possibly be any worse than what's, what the United States has done. So I will see. All right. Well, to <clears throat> to move on, uh, move away from uh, Central Asia uh, over to uh, this hemisphere. Uh, I mean. I want to talk about Haiti. Uh, we don't need to talk too long because it's, it's very hard to, to figure out what's going exactly what's going on because it's very hard to get like reliable information. But in the now we it's a week or two weeks since um, the assassination of the Haitian president Jovenel Moise by uh, what appear to be Colombian mercenaries hired by some shady fucking doctor in Florida. I mean, well, I mean Haiti Haiti's in like a political crisis right now because it's like. Very, I mean, like, it, it, who exactly is in charge of that company? But like, in, in the in in the time that's passed since, has there been any development in terms of just at the very least, just speculating on who is really behind this assassination and what their goal is? And also, could you talk about the the prospects for perhaps a U.S. intervention? Because I'm seeing more and more calls that the U.S. needs to intervene in Haiti to because of the poli- ongoing political crisis in terms of like who is running the country. I mean, the answer right. is I don't know. Like that, people want it to be the United States or the UN blue helmets or something like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the U.S. intervention in Haiti's worked out so well every other time we've done yeah, it. Yeah, we got a long history. Uh, you know, it's 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 always a good deal, uh, especially for the Haitians. Um, I, 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 the, the possibility of an intervention, I think is a direct intervention uh, has shrunk a little bit. I think, um, first of all, Biden, uh, you know, said that he has, he's not planning to, to intervene in that way. He's not going to send the, uh, the U S military. in. secondly, the political crisis, uh, is starting. It looks like it may be starting to resolve itself a little bit. Um, there was a dispute between, uh, the interim prime minister Claude Joseph, who uh, sort of assumed power after Moise was assassinated, uh, even though he was, you know, within days of of being kind of on his way out of of that job, uh, Moise had appointed a new prime minister, Ariel. I, I guess Henri. I don't know. My French is not good, so excuse me. <laughs> but uh, there was some. I mean, there was a you know sort of contest between these two guys who was the legitimate prime minister and who could legitimately form a government. Joseph announced, um, I think just today, actually, that he's going to step down and make way for uh, for Ariel Henry. So that that part of it seems to have uh, seems to be resolving itself. There, there's no longer two claimants to the uh, the premiership. There's only one uh, that doesn't resolve the issue of who should be the interim president. And, and that's really a legal constitutional question that uh, can't be resolved, basically, because Haiti doesn't have a functioning parliament and um, the chief justice of their Supreme Court, who was under at least one interpretation of the law, was was next in line to be president, died, uh, I think, last month of COVID. So he's not an option. Uh, so they really I mean, they were really in kind of a, an empty space here. And there's there's should be an election later this year for both parliament and the president. So that 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 could resolve things if it happens at this point, you know, who knows um, in terms of the, the assassins, these Colombians, I, I, you know, it's, it's still very murky. You know, there's been speculation about, you know, some, some element of this being an inside job or that the Colombians 
claiming that they were hired to actually provide security for Moise and that there was, uh, you know, his own kind of Haitian security was involved in the assassination or something like that. Uh, there's a lot of these kind of conspiracy theories running around. The, the one that I've seen uh, that that makes the most sense to me is that Moise was kind of, you know, sacrificed in a sense by the the kind of conservative elements in, in Haitian politics who had kind of worn out their their patience with him and the the extended kind of years long political crisis or the you know couple of years at least uh, that he's overseen and and kind of were worried that 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 he was going to lose control to um, you know some really unacceptable faction leftists or or you know God forbid uh, the people of Haiti uh, and so they they bumped him off to kind of gain some control of the situation and maybe, to actually try to spark a U.S. intervention to try and get Washington to do something to to step in and, and put its foot down. But, I, I you know, that's uh, that's all speculative as far as I know. But the U.S. did that, you know, 25 years ago, 27 years ago. So it's not totally crazy. And I just wanted to to highlight no, that again. Not. Yeah. Yeah, we see from the the Middle East to Haiti, right, that the importance of these mercenaries, we see a change in sort of the structure of warfare that the United States has has supported for the last 30 years. I mean, these guys in, must in some way be connected to Plan Colombia. You know, there's just no way that they're not in, in any meaningful way. And so we see, you know, again, the blowback, the the the, the um, coming home to roost of what happens when the United States supports these international mercenary groups around the world, essentially creates them. And you'll see stuff like this more and more as field armies you know, go back. Well, I mean, just just real quick. I mean, like the the once deposed president of Haiti, Jean Bertrand Aristide, just returned to Haiti just yesterday. From he was in Cuba for like a month for I think seeking like unspecified medical treatment, but he was greeted by hundreds at the airport. Um, but yeah, like I mean, he he was the guy that we you know like uh, shuffled out of there in the early nineties. But I mean, like, do you have? I mean, is there? Does does that complicate matters? I mean, does Aristide have a still have a uh, constitu- popular constituency in Haiti? Uh, I mean, I, I, I it was it's interesting timing. I don't I don't know enough about Haitian politics to say how much support he has. Um, but it was certainly interesting timing for him to come back just now. Um, you know, I, I whether the U.S. would allow that because you know, as you say, we've we've had uh, we already took him out once. Um, you know, that's that's another question entirely. But uh, he, he he could, I mean, he could be a player here. Um, I, you know, certainly, in in if not as an actual uh, contender for for the presidency or the for power as somebody kind of you know working behind the scenes. Yeah, a lot of I've I've heard experts on Haiti refer to the gangsterization of the company and uh, of the company of the country. So I think that's also uh, an, an interesting way to look at it that there are these different power centers, like not like the five families fighting, right? And you could have a charismatic leader come back and assume um, control of one of the various gangster groups, and and that could have some potential effect. But I think, like Derek says, it's really in process right now. Well, uh, moving on from Haiti to the uh, the country that Aristide was uh, seeking medical treatment in, uh, just just finally, and you know we talked about this a lot lately, but uh, Cuba, um, you know obviously protests are ongoing, protests and counter protests are ongoing in Cuba, and anytime Cuba is in the news, particularly if there is um, uh, an upswell in anti government sentiment among people on the island, it's always going to be like you know leading in the news because of how powerful. 
the you know uh, Florida Cuban community is in shaping American policy and just how we think about uh, Cuba and that and you know like that that country and that part of the world. I mean, there's sort of a there was a a plan sort of a, uh, like a Bay of Influencers where people like uh, like wanting the U.S. government to give them the right to like uh, arm themselves and to form a sort of flotilla of boats. Right, they're going to sail their Miami yachts into, into Cuba, <laughs> Cuba, which you know is a plan I'm a hundred percent in favor of. I would really like to see that go forward. But I mean, I bring up Cuba again just in one in one very specific sense. I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about the protests that are going on there and the history of America and, you know, basically keeping that country in its, our crosshairs for about 70 years now. But I mean, specifically, I, w- I wanted to ask you guys, because there was there was one specific thing. I think we referenced it a little bit on, on the last show, but this is the the influence of the uh, the discipline of uh, political science on our understanding of these <laughs> issues, because I mean, there is this. Uh, there was this this tweet that was going around where it was like a, a political scientist who was using graphs to uh, make the case that uh, Cuba is you know uh, she she using 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 the power of graphs she was able to show a huge drop off in the freedom index Ooh, when Batista rough. was overthrown by Castro in 1959. So I was just wondering like just just like I mean. What, how, the, the discipline of politi- the political science in general. I mean, like, I mean, it, it was so hilarious and it was such a perfect encapsulation of it to be like, well, if you look at this graph here, you'll see that um, the antebellum South was actually a freer country than Haiti under uh, a communist rule. Um, but like, it just, I mean, this, this is a hokum discipline, well, the, right? I mean, I mean no, no offense to anyone who studied it, but... Like these, these numbers are like hot or not for geopolitics, basically. It's like, right. you, your democracy is a 2, but my democracy is a 10. It's hot as shit. It's and a smoke like, show. It's a 10 out of 10 it, yeah, smoke it's like show. a smoke show. You know, it's hot, the hottest democracy going. And you like assign these numbers based on arbitrary characteristics of what you think a democracy should look like, which is basically what is the United States do, or, you know, whatever model, Western model you have of what democracy is supposed to be, you, you subjectively then, you know, kind of group these things and give it a number and then put it on a graph. So you somehow kind of transmogrify it into an objective statistic. Right. And then you can start to compare things and, uh, you know, and, and treat it like it's a a fact instead of just a, a, you know, a fucking arbitrary opinion. Yeah, and as someone who unfortunately has devoted their life to studying the history of political science in some sense, it's really a discipline that arose during and after World War II, totally in concert with the American empire. And I think it's really important to recognize that things like area studies were were funded by the U.S. government, uh, partially to create a cadre of experts able to manage the American imperial apparatus. And so you get the creation of a literal discipline in the United States' most elite universities that is specifically designed to foster American empire and American hegemony. And things like the Freedom Index and things that are um, promoted by places like Freedom House, I just think are, are, are epistemologically, that is, in terms of the knowledge that they represent, are really uh, ridiculous. They're trying to quantify and they're trying to model a social reality that is ultimately unmodelable. You, that search for perfect knowledge, which is so characteristic of the post-World War II uh, American state and American American society and American universities, I think is just fundamentally misguided. You're not going to be able to abstract social reality into numbers in a way that will either give you accurate predictions or an understanding of what's going on on the ground, because the ultimate normative, um, 
the normative thing that all these things are being measured against is the United States. And it's not only the United States, it's a particular class of American elites and what they understand the United States to be. So in some sense, I, I just think from a fundamental perspective, the project is totally uh, misguided and it gets even more misguided when you try to quantify things like freedom or, or happiness. Yeah. It's, it's just total bullshit. It's just total bullshit, in my opinion. Um, but like, I mean, just in terms of that, like the, the, the freedom index thing, right? Like, because it's just like, well, by the standards of the U.S. Constitution, I mean, you could point to Cuba and say, like, Cubans have less, uh, you know, political rights or freedoms in terms of like joining political parties or having a, a free press than America or let's say some of our allies in the Western Hemisphere like Colombia or Honduras or whatever. But like in obscuring a social reality, it's like sort of like, well, which country would you rather live in as like an average person? And what is freedom? Like, like, what, what, like, what is more free? Like what is more freeing in your life? Like the right to join uh, whatever political party you want um, or the right to um, not be um, <laughs> not, not be killed by a death squad. Well, the idea that democracy can only be multi-party voting is is absurd anyway. I mean, and, and that's why Cuba really is such a good litmus test for like just how much you've if you consider yourself a leftist like how much you've really thought about what it would mean to transcend capitalism is that the idea well, no it would basically be just the same and you'd have all these different parties of voting well, well no no you would absolutely not because these things only exist in the context of capitalism and one of the things that's happened in the U.S., particularly among people who like discuss what freedom means, is that since the 30s, freedom has been explicitly defined as political freedom, as as opposed to economic freedom or social freedom or cultural freedom. And that really is part and parcel of the project, I think, uh, to remove ordinary people from any form of decision making in the United States. When you defy freedom as essentially the right to vote, that's actually a very weak understanding of democracy. And and everyone you know remembers the two fingers of Iraq and the voting in 2006. I mean, was that freedom? It's completely ridiculous. And so you have this normative perspective that is never talked about when people like quantify these ridiculous metrics. I mean, that's why everybody is now hyper conspiracy theory oriented is because we're told every day that we're free and that we get to vote and that that vote is validating uh, our choices. And yet everything that happens is against our will. What we don't want makes our lives worse. How is that to be explained? And, and there is no effort to, to square that. And so, of course, people are going to figure, well, there have to be people behind the scenes. And it's like, yeah, they are. They are doing things behind the scenes. And the, one of the ways they're doing that is by promoting an idea of, of freedom that involves this ritualized participation in democracy that does not touch any of the actual meaningful questions of economic freedom and uh, the destiny, literally, of the fucking people. Like, we're, we're, what's going to happen to uh, the industrial base? What's going to happen to uh, the culture in every way? Those those decisions are not made at the ballot box, but we're supposed to allow the vote to stand in uh, for a validation of it, even though uh, the there is no mechanism to enforce our will. I, I think that's that's right. And, and one of the other things that bugs me about these things, like the Freedom Index, is there they're done in a vacuum. I mean, they're done uh, without any context of, of that, the, the particular country's experience. And they're presented, you know, if you, if you're rated unfree or whatever, or partly unfree or, or whatever the ratings are, uh, it, it's all characterized as sort of a failure of that country or a defect of that country. We don't talk about 
the 62 year embargo that the United States has, has levied on Cuba and what kind of impact that has on the politics of a country. We don't talk about sanctions on Iran and what kind of impact those have on the politics of a country uh, that, that, you know, engender uh, uh, or create these situations that we then define as, you know, a, a lack of freedom or contribute to that. It's, it's really, they're just empty measures. I mean, I want, I want to return to this idea about, um, like what what in an American context, like we consider like what what's a free country versus like a, a tyrannical authoritarian one, and a, like a, a good example because you can see it is our protests against the like you know ruling regime uh, violently and brutally suppressed by the the police and military forces uh, that run that country, and in Cuba, like I mean there's been a, a lot of uh, protest against the government and for the government. Um, I'm sure, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to tell, but I have not seen any of what I would consider credible media reports from uh, credible journalists, um, American or, um, you know, uh, in the Spanish-speaking world, that would suggest that these protests in Cuba are being ruthlessly and violently suppressed by the Cuban state. I'm sure it's not all kid gloves. I don't want to make it seem like it's, it's all, you know, just uh, everything's fine and nice down there. But let's contrast that with just the events of like not even a couple weeks ago in Colombia, where there have been a massive, massive protest movement in that country, mostly led by young people against their rather right wing government of which we know from the Colombian journalists and because, Oh, wow, they have, they have a nominally free press in that country. We're able to know about things like this that was suppressed by the Colombian police and military in a number of ghastly and unspeakable ways, including rape, torture, and murder of, you know, we don't need like possibly hundreds, if not thousands of, of uh, civilians. And I mean, like, and again, Colombia, and, but like corresponding with that, with this, this horrible, horrible, violent crackdown on peaceful protests in Colombia, we didn't see the, um, uh, the, the sort of like the, the, <laughs> The outpouring of people of 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 American uh, Colombian Americans saying like, "Oh, my country, it yearns for freedom. Please, America, intervene." Yeah, well, I think what you're getting at is really important because what what you're pointing to is that there's this element of liberalism that really fixates on the idea of a free press, and I think you know whether a capitalist press can ever be truly free is really important. But I think it's based on the idea that a type of rational exchange is the key to political development, and so it's so foundational to how people understand politics they don't even appreciate that that's what they're doing they're like Jurgen Habermas claiming that you know if information is free then political progress will happen and i just think that's historically and empirically untrue but it's hard to it's it's like a religious belief it's hard to um, persuade people that that's not actually how things work and so then they fixate on it and they they lose sight of what i would say is more important things like what you're referring to which is brutal crackdowns on actual protesters the violence of the state a conservative state that does so much to disenfranchise its people. I don't even know if you, I don't even know that you need to go to Colombia for this. I mean, just look at, I, I would be fascinated to do a poll and find out how many people in the United States who have been tweeting support for the protesters in Cuba think that it should be legal to run over Black Lives Matter protesters because you're late for your uh, latte at Starbucks or you're, you know, you're, you're they're blocking your uh, your path to the Dunkin' Donuts or whatever. Yeah, I, I just, that, that's a, uh, that's know, a very it's, good a, it's a huge disconnect. That's a very good point, Derek, because like, uh, oh, just over this last weekend, I mean, we also had a video of an LAPD officer firing at point blank range a beanbag shotgun shell directly into the chest of a woman standing directly in front of her unarmed with her hands in the air saying, don't shoot. 
over some insane anti-trans QAnon protest at a fucking Korean spa in LA. And uh, by the way, the woman who got shot was there to counter protest these fucking like fucking QAnon degenerates who were out there trying to check people's fucking genitals or, or just start, do, do whatever it is they do. But like, yeah, the cops just shot that woman in broad daylight in front of everyone's every TV camera. We all saw it. It hasn't been censored in our free press. But yeah, they just fucking they just shot her directly in the chest with a less than lethal beanbag round from a shotgun. And again, like, I mean, so for Jen Psaki to come out there and then urge the Cuban government to, you know, uh, use restraint and not to violently suppress protests in their country is pretty fucking rich. Yeah. And I mean, you can go around other protests that have that have happened, you know, relatively recently in Latin America. You can look at uh, the protests in Chile, you know, a few months ago or the, you know, uh, calls to change the Constitution and the number of people who were blinded by cops firing rubber bullets at their heads uh, in that protest movement were, was ridiculous. You can look at all the people who were killed after the, the right-wing junta took power in Bolivia, um, you know, without hearing, you know, a, a solitary word from Washington about the need for uh, control or, or, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, preserve it, protecting the right to protest or, or, or uh, exercising any restraint. It's, it's I mean, yeah, it's, it's sort of obvious uh, what direction this this rhetoric flows? It's only one direction. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, we 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 know uh, pointing out the hypocrisy of the U.S. state is is a fool's errand. But you know, I mean, it's it's right there in front of everyone. It it, it is juicy and unmistakable to miss. I mean, you like, yeah, it's it's staring you right in the face. But uh, particularly after Trump. Right. I mean, like these are the people who spent four years disclaiming against Trump too. I think that's what makes it like not just. You know, that's why it's worth pointing out because it, it was just all hypocritical bullshit the entire time. Uh, and I think that's worth understanding and highlighting. All right. Well, OK. Wrapping up our uh, show for today, I have a uh, reading series that I think is the uh, perfect companion piece to everything we've talked about today. It comes courtesy of David Brooks writing in the op-ed section of The New York Times headline, The American Identity Crisis. You boys ready? I'm yes. always ready for a little David. Yeah. Absolutely. David Brooks begins. For most of the past century, human dignity had a friend, the United States of America. <laughs> it's uh, off to a good start. Uh, there is no greater friend of human dignity than the United States of America over the past century. We are a deeply flawed and error prone nation like any other. But America helped defeat fascism and communism and helped set the context for European peace, Asian prosperity and the spread of democracy. We just we're error prone. We do oopsies, you know, oopsie, 500,000 Iraqis are dead. Oopsie, you know, Venezuela is in shambles. Oops, oops, oops. Yeah, that's My that bad. is that is one of the most frustrating framings of American power that it's anything bad that happens is an oversight. It's a poor mistake. It's and, more insulting than just admitting that we did it on purpose. Uh, and a hundred years ago, uh, the U.S. was occupying Haiti and the Philippines, just to point out, to, you know, like literally a hundred years ago. Then came Iraq and Afghanistan, the two big oopsies of the 21st century. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so then came Iraq and Afghanistan and America lost faith in itself and its global role, like a pitcher who's been shelled and no longer has confidence in his own stuff. I mean, God, it's just. We got to develop a new pitch. You know, we got to work yeah. on our changeup. We've lost some of that get gas. Back, how are we, we going to get out on that yeah. mound? A, a pitcher yeah. who maybe said some uncomfortable but true things about New York when he took <laughs> the seven grand. <laughs> <laughs>
On, okay, uh, Brooks continues. Uh, on the left, many now reject the idea that America can be or is a global champion of democracy. And they find phrases like the indispensable nation or the last best hope, the last best hope on earth ridiculous. On the right, the wall-building caucus has given up on the idea that the rest of the world is even worth engaging. I mean, I just... I. <laughs> It used Clowns to be to the left, Dave, me jokers to the right. <laughs> it used to be uh, David Brooks could wear his "Ask Me About the Indispensable Nation" T-shirt around Washington D.C. without gales of laughter from children <laughs> following him around, but uh, that's become more difficult as of late. Many people around the world have always resisted America's self-appointed role as democracy's champion. <laughs> many people, many just yes, most resisted of the population that. of the world have resisted that. <laughs> Um, but, they, but they have also been rightly appalled when America sits back and allows genocide to engulf places like Rwanda or allows regimes to threaten the world order. I mean, again, just like, just like how fucking blinkered a worldview do you have to have to write a sentence like that? Where it's just like, oh, well, all the genocides we're doing over the world, um, that's, that, that's not a problem. And for some reason, those people continue to resist America's uh, global role as the indispensable nation. But, you know, then Rwanda happens and everyone wants something from us. Yeah, it's very 1990s. You know, this this is literally an argument from the late 1990s. And I think that just shows that Brooks is, I mean, everyone knows, but the total intellectual exhaustion of this way of viewing the world. Uh, the Afghans are the latest to witness this reality. The American bungles in Afghanistan have been well documented. Oopsies. We've spent We've spent trillions of dollars and lost thousands of our people. No, I mean, no mention of the Afghan people. But, uh, but, but the two-decade strategy of taking the fight to the terrorists in Afghanistan and elsewhere has meant that global terrorism is no longer seen as a major concern in daily life. I mean, is that really the re reason that uh, people no longer really care about global <laughs> terrorism as a concern in their daily life? I mean... I, I, you know, I mean, the fact that it never really was a major concern in daily life should, <laughs> that probably, should probably helps enter into this. Yeah. Over the past few years, a small force of American troops has helped prevent some of the worst people on earth from taking over a nation of more than 38 million with relatively few American casualties. I mean, okay. I mean, some of the <laughs> how about other people casualties? What, what uh, do we care about those? David knows his audience, you have to admit. Well, I just like he says that we prevented some of the worst people on earth from taking over the country of Afghanistan. It's like, David, are you talking about your friends at the American <laughs> Enterprise Institute and the Heritage <laughs> Foundation? Uh, in 1999, no Afghan girls attended secondary school. Within four years, 6% were enrolled. And as of 2017, the figure has climbed to nearly 40%. But America, disillusioned with itself, is now withdrawing. I mean, well, I mean, like this is the thing, like, are we withdrawing because we're just so disillusioned with ourselves, or is we've been drawing because we've been defeated? I mean, I, been, I don't think we've like been our, defeated. Our, I mean, like, yeah, like I yeah, the, we the, lost. <laughs> I mean, this thing, like this, this psychoanalysis of the American public, which, like uh, Danny, as you pointed out, has from the get-go been completely cut off from having any say whatsoever in whether we go to war, stay in war, how we intervene in other countries. It's just, oh, like Brooks has to psychoanalyze us now because we're all just so alienated and disillusioned, and we've lost our faith. It's like, no, we lost. We lost that war. We have no ability to project force or impose conditions on Afghanistan because we've been routed and we have to leave because we just can't do it anymore. This reminds me of like an article that you write about an athlete who's maybe been at their sport for too long. And it's like, oh, they need to fall in love with the game again. <laughs> <laughs> we just got caught out there. 
But it's also like his implicit program is genuinely psychotic. It's hundreds of years of military occupation. Like him and Max Boot, I think they've, well, Met Boot definitely has made a reference to like the so-called Indian Wars. And that's essentially what Brooks is advocating, like a permanent frontier, you know, genocidal exterminatory campaign to create, uh, you know, uh, Afghanistan in the image of the United States. And it, it's wild that that sort of thing could still be in the mainstream. It's it's just so racist, so brutal it's really bizarre but again i mean because we've outsourced so much of this and because it's you know there's no longer a draft there's no longer even a sense that the the military at large is is involved here as opposed to a small group within it uh we're we're outsourcing even further to drones and and you know robots basically over human beings because of that, and we don't even we don't I mean we don't even raise taxes to cover the costs of these things anymore. The person who reads David Brooks, uh, the the kind of person who eagerly picks up the New York Times is like, I want to what what did David have to say today? They feel none of this. They feel no impact from a perpetual occupation of Afghanistan. There's nothing that that touches them from that. Uh, and so he can say stuff like this. I mean, he can talk about. Uh, well, we should just keep doing this forever. You, it hasn't it hasn't mussed your your hair so far. So why why you know why should you care? Let's keep doing it. Uh, jumping ahead, uh, Brooks writes: uh, History didn't stop just because America lost confidence in itself. As President Biden correctly notes, the world finds itself enmeshed in a vast context between uh, in a vast contest between democracy and different forms of autocracy. This is not just a struggle between political systems. It's an economic, cultural, intellectual, and political context contest all at once, a struggle between the forces of progressive modernity and reaction. I mean, is he talking about the rest of the world or just America itself? Because, I mean, like, that's a pretty accurate description of our <laughs> domestic political climate. But, I mean, I'm not sure David Brooks is entirely on the side of the angels in that conflict. Over the past decades, America and its allies have betrayed our values and compromised with tyrants innumerable times. But at their core, the liberal powers radiate a set of vital ideals, not just democracy and capitalism, but also feminism, multiculturalism, human rights, egalitarianism, LGBTQ rights, and the dream of racial justice. These things are all intertwined in a progressive package that puts individual dignity at the center. That is a hell what? of a to-be-sure paragraph. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. To be sure, we've Jesus. murdered and annihilated so many countries. No, no, they compromised with tyrants. It's like, oh, we'd like you to be better, but geez, you're just holding all the cards. We're just your sole hegemon. We're just going to have to meet you halfway here rather than that we're dictating the terms of what we want in these places to the degree we can. It's another unfortunate oopsie. Oops, you, you. You know, took a bone saw to a reporter in, in the consulate and missed that bull. Oops. Right. Ask your dignity dealer about the progressive package. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's interesting that he's trying to, like, frame it as progressive, which I think points to sort of this rehabilitation of neocons into the Democratic Party. That is, I think, unique. That's not the language they would have used 20 years ago. Um, so that's that well, sort of shows that shift. Well, yeah, in, in, in that paragraph, he says, look, oh, no, it's not just liberal democracy and capitalism. It's all these bonuses that go along with it, like feminism, multiculturalism, egalitarianism, and LGBTQ rights, which are the now the new justification for our ongoing cold and hot wars over the world. But I mean, this is doubly odd coming from David Brooks, because I mean, like, when did he decide that he was for gay and lesbian and trans rights? 
Well, was when, it I two mean, weeks when his, ago? When his audience shifted to, you know, MSNBC viewers as opposed to Fox News yeah. viewers. I mean, but like David Brooks, particular, like specifically during the Bush administration, um, the W. Bush administration, wed himself entirely to a political project that explicitly sought to abrogate the rights of gay and lesbian people in this country. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, you, you can't imagine. I mean, you couldn't possibly imagine him justifying this conflict, uh, you know, 15 years ago uh, on the basis of, of what he writes in this paragraph. His audience would the, the audience that he had at that time. Uh, would would read this and go, you know, what what the hell are you talking about, dude? I don't want any of those things. Like, I don't agree with any of that. Yeah, so I think it's trying to get back into like sort of the elite, urban, meritocratic, educated sphere. Like that that is where the need. I mean, it's a return home. That's where they started in their early seventies. They're Scoop Jackson Democrats, effectively. So they're returning back. I wouldn't be surprised if they start doing pro labor positions soon as well, like Jackson did initially. Uh, if the twenty first century has taught us anything. It's that a lot of people, foreign and domestic, don't like that package and feel existentially threatened by it. China's leaders are not just autocrats. They think they are leading a civilization state and are willing to slaughter ethnic minorities. Vladimir Putin is not just a thug. He's a cultural reactionary. The Taliban champion a vision, uh, champion a fantasy version of the Middle Ages. These people are not leading 20th century liberation movements against colonialism and American hegemony. They are leading a 21st century culture conf against women's rights, gay rights, minority rights, individual dignity, the whole progressive package. Vladimir Putin needs to stop sagging his pants. <laughs> he's got to invest. He's got. He's got to. He's got to buy into this dignity package that he keeps Vladimir, talking about. Yeah, Vladimir Putin is. Walking around wearing huge UNC powder boot blue basketball shorts. <laughs> David I mean, Brooks I would, I would aligning himself with uh, pro-nationalist decolonization movements is fucking ridiculous. That is absurd. Uh, he says, you, you know, this is a culture war and not a traditional great power rivalry because the threat to each nation is more internal than external. The greatest threat to America is that domestic autocrats inspired by a global authoritarian movement will again take over the U.S. government. The greatest threat to China is that internal liberals inspired by global liberal ideas will threaten the regime. Each civilization is thus trying to attract believers to its own vision. It matters tremendously how we show up in the world. We're never going back to the Bush doctrine, but we're probably not going to do well in, bat in the battle for hearts and minds if we see ourselves abandoning our allies in places like Afghanistan. We're probably not going to do well if our own behavior begins to represent the real politic of autocrats. We probably won't do well if we can't look at ourselves in the mirror without a twinge of shame. David, I, how have you been looking at yourself at all these past 20, 30 years? How, like, what the are there any mirrors in your house? I mean, it should have been Shiva at his fucking place for the last fucking for his entire career. I don't know how he passes by a fucking uh, like a like a storefront window without catching a glimpse of himself and wanting to end it. I think he looks at himself in the mirror like Patrick Bateman did. <laughs> I guess what befuddles me the most is the behavior of the American left. I get why Donald Trump and other American authoritarians would be ambivalent about America's role in the world. They were always suspicious of the progressive package that America helped promote. But every day I see progressives defending women's rights, LGBTQ rights, and racial justice at home, and yet championing a foreign policy that cedes power to the Taliban, Hamas, and other reactionary forces abroad. If we're going to fight Trumpian authoritarianism at home, we have to fight the more venomous brands of authoritarianism that thrive around the world. That means staying on the field. I gotta so give credit go. to him, because he's he is 
Like Alexander Dugan is is being the fucking uh, I think you should leave guy right now. Like, oh, oh my God, God, they admit it. He admit it. Like he is saying that that uh, that the neoliberal death uh, empire is inextricably linked to uh, to ideas of cultural pluralism and and, uh, you know, uh, racial and sexual egalitarianism uh, and that those two things are inextricably linked and it's a package deal. If you want gay rights and trans rights, then you need drones and you need the IMF controlling your economy. That, that, that those are that is a that you cannot detach those. You cannot unbundle them like it's a cable package. Yeah. And I think this is this is not a pitch to the people that would actually have to fill out the personnel of the military no, of, of the no. infantry. Like that'll be something else. This is to the people who will, you know, be their bosses. Will be civilian, civilian officers at the CIA. People who like, you know, program the shitty AI for drones, shit like that. But like, you know, they'll come up with something else for infantry because they're not going to get you to like put your body on the line with like, you know, we need to get Pashtuns to watch Shit's Creek. No, I mean, but, they, but they this don't need is, to get anything yeah. for them. Economic, uh, mo- economic coercion will do it for them. Yeah, but but yeah. for people who you need to, to have a certain degree of expertise to do these jobs within the 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 machinery within the bureaucracy, uh, you need to hire. It's just like with that the woke CIA recruitment film. It's exactly. like you these people have to have gone to college, and the, and the people who go to college have, by virtue of the fact that they're on that track already, have metabolized certain values and. The, this project is uh, Brooks is just part of the broader project of creating a va- um, uh, a rationalization for these people as they pursue these careers that allow them to sleep at night. And it's I mean, it's it's so historical. I mean, to talk about the United States championing uh, women's rights around the world. I mean, has he heard of the Helms Amendment? Has he heard of the global gag rule? Has he heard of any of the things the United States has consistently done for decades to to damage women's health care and women's rights all over the world? Uh, it, you know, it's it's just sort of amazing to to you know see this kind of mythical presentation of U.S. foreign policy as as. The, the conduit for these progressive ideals. Has he heard? Has he heard of it, David? He supported it until about fifteen minutes ago. I mean, like, like <laughs> exactly. That's, I mean, like I mean, I guess like just like the, the the theme for today's episode is the neocons are all going back to their roots in the Democratic Party, and it it seems to be a perfect fit. I mean, like this, like it just because they have they, it's not communism anymore, and it certainly isn't terrorism anymore because no one gives a shit. But now, like they have the, the the new excuse is the is the progressive dignity package that we have to engage in a global war for in perpetuity for forever because like, I mean, the, we, because it, the Democratic Party is now fully the party of the international bourgeois and the yep. Republican Party is the party of the of the of the small national bourgeois who don't want to fucking have an empire they think they can do domestic capitalism they can't they're idiots but they think that and they have completely control they have complete institutional control at this point of the Republican Party. All right. Well, I think that does it for uh, David Brooks and this week's show. But before we go, uh, Derek and Danny, would you tell the folks about American Prestige, uh, how to listen and what to expect? Yeah. Danny, you want to take this one? You want to start? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Yeah, I'll take this one. So uh, American Prestige is just the uh, new foreign policy podcast. Uh, 
by the two hottest foreign policy analysts working today. That's Derek <laughs> and myself. Uh, you could find it on, you know, where you, anywhere you could get your podcast. And what we're really going to try to do is, is connect a lot of these issues that seem disconnected from what people go through in their lives uh, to, to, to what's actually happening in the United States and present the global structure for what it is, which is a world order led and dominated and uh, I would say perverted by a U.S. hegemony in the U.S. empire. So uh, we, we plan to release episodes uh, roughly every Friday, and we'd really appreciate any support that you could give us to build a sort of independent uh, news source and commentary source about what's going on in the world and how many countries the U.S. is bombing this week. Uh, yeah, it's it's really, you know, I think we want to marry, uh, you know, some context for the things that are happening in the world to uh, the sort of bigger picture things that we talk about in terms of U.S. foreign policy and the impact that the United States has uh, on these things. So it's going to be a mix of kind of uh, international stories and, uh, you know, things that are more analytical in terms of, of America's role in the world and, and all the friends we've made along the way. Um, and, and, you know, people can check us out as Danny said, every, wherever you get your podcasts, there's a website, American prestige uh, that people can check out. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll put in a, a plug for, for the newsletter too for foreign exchanges, uh, fx.substack.com where I'm, I'm doing some of this stuff as well. So, uh, yeah, check those out, please. Uh, I think maybe you missed it. I think you should have called the show the Oopsie Report. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been good. Cataloging all the oopsies of U.S. Empire. Well, uh, links to both the uh, foreign exchanges and the new show will be in the episode description. But gentlemen, it was always always a pleasure to uh, talk world affairs with you guys. Derek Davison and Daniel Besner, thanks so much. Thanks, Will. Thanks, guys. Till next time, boys. Bye-bye. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right.